Thanks for clocking in to Becoming a Better Nurse podcast. I'm Rebecca. And Aaron. Together, we like to offer ideas, conversations, and solutions to help educate, elevate, and empower nurses. Today, we're going to be talking about part three interventions with your stroke patients. And we did want to clarify in part two about the blood pressure um, control. and I got it backwards. So anyways, she she said for uh, uh, hemorrhagic strokes, you got to keep it over 160. When in reality, it was under 160. I think she. But w- once it's fixed, you can yes. have permissive hypertension. So once it's fixed, and you get the coiling in, and um, and then then at that point, you can get the blood pressure up to perfuse the brain. I so. just, I got it backwards. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, good thing we corrected it, and, and we're just kind of letting you guys know how um what things are. So interventions. Let's talk about. Both the bleeding interventions for, for uh, interventions for bleeding strokes and interventions for uh, ischemic strokes, and I guess we'll talk about ischemic strokes first, just because it's the big bulk of the issue. Most most stroke patients are ischemic, so that's about eighty percent of strokes, I would say. So the biggest thing eighty five percent are ischemic and fifteen percent are hemorrhagic. Yep. So the biggest thing with with uh, ischemic strokes, it, it's all based on timing. So you really have to find out when the last known well of the patient is, and let's start with there. So if the patient's last known well was within four and a half hours and like we mentioned before it's not when symptoms started it's when the last known well was so if it was within the last four and a half hours when these patients come in through the ed um, as a walk-in or through ems the intervention of choice is an iv thrombolytic like tenect the place or alteplase Yep, you get the CT, it rules out hemorrhagic stroke, and you give the Alteplase right away. Some facilities do it in the radiology department. Some people go back to the emergency room and have it mixed up. Um, ICU, obviously, you're not going to give it unless they're actually stroking in your ICU, but it needs to be given um, in the time frame of at least an hour. That is for CMS guidelines, but most facilities want you to give it way earlier. Yep, and so based on the NIH, they will decide whether to give, and their disability, NIH, whatever the case may be, they'll decide whether to give the IV thrombolytic or not, and whether it's alteplase or tenecteplase, you mix it, and based on weight, it's all based on weight, and then um, with tenecteplase is an IV push, there's no drip, and with alteplase is a push plus a drip, and again, it's all based on last known well, and you administer it via IV, and now that's the first intervention of choice, the second intervention of choice is if these patients' NIH is pretty high or they have a pretty significant disability or after they give the thrombolytic, they do perfusion or a CT angio and they find that the patient has a large vessel occlusion, even though the patient received thrombolytic or maybe they didn't, they will take him to IR to do a thrombectomy, thrombectomy which basically means they're going to take the clot out, they're going to suck it out. Yeah puncture your groin they insert a catheter tube up to the area in the brain where the artery is where the occlusion is and they suck it out kind of like an mi you know when you go in there and you balloon it through the arteries of your heart this actually goes to your brain mm. and you suck out the clot and that will help uh, reperfuse the brain. So that's the second intervention. They actually can do that if you're out of the time limp, time frame of the four and a half hours. Oh, that's true. I forgot so about that. So yeah. they 
they can still, they will always still do a CAT scan um, to rule out hemorrhagic stroke, but they will do a CTA. If they're out the window, outside the window, they'll automatically do a CTA perfusion study so that they can um, see if they're going to be a candidate. And we had talked about in the last um, episode that the CAT scan can show the penumbra and they use that to show whether or not it's reversible or irreversible ischemia. So if they're way outside the window and the CTA and the CT shows um, irreversible ischemia, that means that the perfusion to that area of the brain is not going to help. So they will not do a um, perfusion uh, thrombectomy for that and that is a sad situation but it is a reality because you're actually going to do more harm to the patient if you reperfuse the brain again but it's irreversible ischemia that means it's already dead and brain cells die pretty quickly yes. so and what will happen the the cause the reason why that you cause more harm is because they can um, bleed in the area that's dead there's no cells to help with the with the um, blood that's coming back it just blo- it just bleeds so that's going to cause um, bleeding in the brain they'll maybe herniate their brain they won't recover from that from that first stroke and now you've just caused another stroke and the time frame typically for intervention is is last known normal within 24 hours and i think that's the big the big um guiding light uh, 20 under 24 hours of last known normal i'm not sure how soon they want to take them obviously the sooner the sooner the better just because it helps with brain perfusion but definitely within 24 hours is the biggest and so 24 hours is the big key for thrombectomies for patients who are having a large vessel occlusion. And those are the two major interventions for strokes that are caused by a clot ischemia, correct? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, just to further add to that is because these patients now that they've had a stroke are more prone to strokes, you want, they want to be on medication that's going to really help them prevent that from happening. So typically these patients are going to require at least an aspirin. So an antithrombotic, and um, if they're really bad or if they have like some type of uh, AFib, which you know AFib causes clots, they will probably also be on it. They should be on an anticoagulant as well, uh, Coumadin, uh, Eliquis, whatever the case may be. But AFib definitely a hard requirement is an anticoagulant, and for the bare minimum, if they don't have AFib and they're just typical stroke patients, they will require an antithrombotic aspirin. Um, they will also need statin. And uh, the American Heart Association now requires that statins are, um, are, are, do- are dosed based on the age of the patient. So if a patient is 75 years or older, um, they need moderate, um, moderate intensive statin. And if they are under 75 years, they will require a high intensive. So think of Lipitor 40, that's a high intensive. But those are the two main things that the patients will need so that they will prevent um, receiving uh, from getting a clot again or or prevent from uh, uh, getting a stroke. A stroke reoccurrence. Now, Aaron brought up a good point about them typically being in AFib. So after the stroke has been diagnosed and treated, most of the treatment that's going to be after the stroke for the hospital stay, which um, let's face it, we know they're going to be admitted. They'll probably go to ICU initially and then they'll be, you know, downgraded if they do well. But they're going to be working on the cause of the um, stroke. So they're going to do 
workups with carotid ultrasounds. They're going to do a workup for your um, arrhythmias. If you're not in AFib at the moment, they're going to see if maybe you have uh, paroxysmal AFib, which is in and out of AFib. So you might wear a loop record. Patients might go home on the loop recorder. They'll get a cardiology consult. Um, so these patients aren't done yet just because you treated the stroke. There's a whole bunch of other list of things they're going to do So because um, you want to find the cause. And there's a ton of causes depending on your age, depending on your um, um, risk, factors. risk factors, depending on even um, just uh, prior strokes or even a no, recent saying, TIA. That's called risk factors. And so if you've already had a stroke, that's a risk factor. So you're more likely to have another stroke. They might do an ultrasound of the um, legs and, and the, to see if they had a DVT at one point. So expect those kind of tests to be ordered. Um, if you're in the ER, obviously they're not going to do that in the ER. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you're on the floor in the critical care, that's one thing. That's definitely something you should expect. And if it's not done, you should ask for it because that's not appropriate treatment for the patient, and you might not be in the best facility. <laughs> and also, as far as interventions go, if they're in the e uh, ICU or inpatient, it's the same thing. You know, if the last known well, and you will give them the IV thrombolytic. Not you. I mean, you're not going to order it. The physician will order it uh, based on the S bar and what you tell them, and then based and then from there, uh, you will administer it. Pharmacy typically mixes it, or you, and then you administer it. Uh, whether you're on the floor, you're on the floor. Uh, you usually have a, a higher intensive nurse who will uh, do that for you. Whether yeah, a house the suit. rapid the rapid response team will maybe um, do that at the bedside, or they'll take the patient and do it. So yep. So you won't be alone, and you won't be um, worried about it. However, they want everyone aware of how to dose things and how to treat it just in case because that's best practice everyone should be aware and now we will talk about interventions for um, hemorrhagic strokes and obviously you know these are a lower a lower scale of strokes typically you know they're typically I would say so we're saying 80% of ischemic strokes uh, it's 15% of patients are hemorrhagic strokes and of those 15% even less than that no well that was what I learned when I did my my test but um, of those 15% hemorrhagic strokes, 85% will not survive. They're yeah. that serious. It's pretty bad. Very serious. Uh, and uh, based on where you work, so like for example, if you work at a primary care center, and then maybe we should talk about that uh, primary care center or comprehensive. So mm -hmm. uh, there's different facilities throughout the United States that are categorized a certain way. So you have uh, for stroke care, some facilities are primary stroke centers or advanced primary, whatever the case may be, and then you have comprehensive. Primary can only basically help uh, patients. They can help everybody, but they can only help, uh, they only have the resources available for patients who come in with ischemic strokes. And then comprehensive can do everything else, like like bleeds, uh, hemorrhagic strokes, and stuff like that. So they, based on where you work. They're equipped with an uh, IR, an IR um, 24 hours, and they're neuro in a neurosurgeon 24 hours. Yeah, so based on where you work, that's kind of where you'll see most of the strokes. So for example, I work at a primary comprehensive, uh, well, primary, uh, advanced primary stroke center. And because I work there, we typically transfer out all hemorrhagic strokes and so we barely ever see them but if you work in a comprehensive in a very well-known comprehensive uh, facility or hospital it's very likely you'll see a lot of hemorrhagic strokes oh yeah and yeah. it also seems like and, and, and we're here talking and you're going to be like 50 percent yeah you're going to it think, seems like higher well yeah. that's because you're getting all of the you're patients in the area yeah. and nobody else can have them because you're the comprehensive uh, center mm -hmm. right so that's yeah. kind of how it works but let's talk about it uh, hemorrhagic stroke uh, and those are can be, be caused by multiple things, but mm -hmm. one of the biggest um, 
diagnosis this would be a subarachnoid hemorrhage and basically that's when one of your arteries in in your subarach one of your arteries in your brain burst and blood pulls into your subarachnoid um, space mm-hmm. and typically that happens from two things high blood pressure uh, which causes a pop and then sometimes um, individuals will have an AV, uh, a malformation and because the malformation that wall on the malformation is t- typically weaker than the actual um, artery walls it's a lot easier for that thing to pop and bleed and a lot of times with subarachnoid hemorrhages the big one of the big symptoms are it feels like the worst headache of my life or it feels like uh, a thun- a thunderbolt clap headache mm-hmm. and that's a big big um, indicator that something's not not right when I took care of the patients like that in the ICU I was really surprised that when um, that's the that was the main complaint they all complained about it so it's not that we're it's a dramatized version of a headache they all said it was the worst headache I'd ever had in my entire life and they and they like basically um, stop just stop talking you know and you just go down it minute it's a minute of complaint and then they just stop because they're bleeding in the yeah, brain. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Very rarely is it a slow leak and they have this slow headache that they might take medicine for and it gets a little better. That's usually in malformation that's leaking, but it hasn't popped yet. So um, anyway, those um, patients usually are the most high risk because it's an artery. But you do have some hemorrhagic strokes which are traumatic. And then you can have, um, which are also TBIs. And then you can also have um, hemorrhagic strokes from um, ju- uh, intracranials, yeah, the intracranial hemorrhage, which is usually hypertension, but it's not in a subarachnoid. Now, uh, and the difference between intracerebral, uh, interparenchymal, and subarachnoid is just the area where the bleed is. But typically, it's just blood and blood in the brain. It's just mm-hmm. the, the area. But a subarachnoid is extremely um, dangerous situation. And so, and with intracerebral, interparenchymal, that could also be caused by trauma, but it also um, uh, high blood pressure. And now, now, typically, if they're co- if things are caused by trauma, um, based on their deficiency or their neurological issue, uh, issues, f- physicians try not to do. Uh, I believe they don't. They don't like, for example, an older genera- generational older patients, uh, sub- subdural hematomas, or they have like interparenchymal and. Um, if their NIH is kind of low or their GCS is, is, is pretty high, and physicians don't typically do anything. They just, they usually, the pool, the the blood will pull back up. It'll get reabsorbed. You just have to control the blood pressure as much as possible. Keep it under 160 based on the on where the bleed is, correct? Yeah, well, with the older generation, our brains shrink anyway, so a lot of times they've got the room to hold the blood. The blood's in the brain and the brain swells. They still have room in the space between their skull and their brain and even in the ventricles, so there's a lot of room for um, them to not have any symptoms at all. But they might have a headache, and then that prompts them to come in or, or change a little LOC or something like that. So that's why the younger generation doesn't typically get a lot of aggression for the, the bleeding brain. Subdurals aren't considered a stroke. However, they still have the same symptoms when it comes to change of LOC, dizziness, um, things like that. So they would go to the ICU and you would, you might want to take the blood off of the brain um, through surgery if it's weighing into their, um, like they're falling a lot at home and they have to get back, they, they live at home alone. So it's kind of up to the surgeon to figure it out. But when you're going to treat a hemorrhagic stroke, it's all based on how the patient's um, 
symptoms are. So when they have no room, the blood goes in, goes in the brain and the brain's like a box and there's no room for that blood to go. So it's either blood goes somewhere or brain goes somewhere. And if the blood is encapsulated in the brain, guess what moves? The brain matter. And the brain matter, you don't want it to move because then that's brain death. So that's the that's the rush for hemorrhagic strokes is you need to find a way to make sure that the brain does not get displaced by the added volume of blood in the brain. So that's when that's what steers the direction of what you're going to do for treatment. Time to clock out. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the like button and subscribe. Stat. Follow us on Instagram. You can find us on Becoming a Better Nurse. Until next time.